0: The following is a short bio of the American serial killer, Tommy Lynn Sells, who was born on June 28, 1964 in Oakland, California, and put to death on April 3, 2014 in Huntsville, Texas. Known as the coast-to-coast killer, Sells claimed to have killed more than 70 people, although it was a single conviction that eventually led to his execution by lethal injection. He was convicted of one other murder as well, for which he was sentenced to life in prison. Sells was born with a twin sister, Tammy Jean, to a single mother. The twins had three older siblings. Shortly after his birth, the family moved to St. Louis, Missouri. At 18 months old, both Tammy and Tommy contracted spinal meningitis. This disease took the life of Tammy Jean. After regaining his health, Sells was sent to live with his aunt in Holcomb, Missouri. This lasted until Sells was five years old. He returned to live with his mother when it was discovered that Sells' aunt had intentions of adopting him. It is widely reported that Sells was left to himself during his formative years, and that he rarely attended school. Around age 8, Sells began a relationship with an adult named Willis Clark who, it is believed, molested Sells with the consent of Sells' mother. Later, Sells would go on to say that this experience affected him a great deal, and that he would often relive the experience when committing crimes. Willis Clark was later tried and convicted of child molestation. By age 10, Sells had stopped attending school altogether and was using drugs and alcohol regularly. His erratic behavior began to distress his mother who eventually abandoned him, taking his siblings and leaving Sells with no way to contact her when he was in his early teens. Sells became a transient and according to him, began his murder spree by killing his first victim at age 15. This, he claimed, was of a man he happened across who was in the process of sexually abusing a young boy. He stated that he killed the man in a fit of rage. During this time, Sells was never caught for murder, but was arrested, tried, and convicted on multiple other charges such as felony theft, malicious wounding, public intoxication, and grand theft auto. Sells was married briefly and diagnosed with a myriad of mental health issues while serving time for these crimes. He was released from prison in 1997. He moved in with his wife, Nora Price, for a short time, but left her to again travel across the country. It has been reported by the Texas Rangers that Sells was directly responsible for the murder of at least 22 people with the belief that there were many, many more victims that could not be verified. Sells' final murder was committed on December 31, 1999, when 10-year-old Crystal Searles awoke to Sells in the act of sexually assaulting and killing her friend, 13-year-old Kayleen Harris. Sells then attacked Crystal Searles, cutting her windpipe and carotid artery. Crystal Searles played dead by laying on the floor in a pool of blood until Sells left the scene, after which she was able to summon help by running more than a quarter of a mile to a neighbor's house. Sells was later apprehended by police based on a sketch created from details provided by Crystal Searles. Crystal Searles later identified Sells as her attacker and the one who brutally murdered her friend, Kayleen Harris. On September 18, 2000, Sells was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. When asked if he wanted to make a final statement before his execution, Sells simply replied, no. This episode is about psychopaths. Are you ready to talk about psychopaths?
1: I know I am. Hello, and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McConaughey
0: and Dr. David Morales.
1: And as David alluded to in his very interesting intro story, today we're going to be talking about psychopaths. And really, we're only going to be touching the surface of this subject. There is so much information with regard to psychopathy, and we're going to give you kind of the basic overview because this is something that we're going to come back to in many of our future episodes.
0: Yeah, I think this will be fascinating. Um, I will be the first to admit this is definitely not my area of expertise. This is much more Dr. Makono's area of expertise. So I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it.
1: Well, the first thing that I want to start out with is by pointing out that psychopathy actually exists on a continuum. I know that we refer to people as either being a psychopath or not being a psychopath, but the reality is that these are traits that all of us probably have to some degree. Now, 99% of the population is not going to have these, these traits strong enough or enough of them to be considered a psychopath. And so I kind of think of it this way, We all have a little psychopath in us. Interesting. Yes, but we're able to kind of control that. So for me, I noticed that my little psychopath tends to emerge in traffic.
0: In this town lately, definitely.
1: And I feel like that's the case for a lot of people. They'll be driving and there's really no thought to anybody else, nobody else's empathy. We do like aggressive things or say aggressive things that we wouldn't normally do if we were face to face with a person.
0: I would agree with that.
1: So so that's kind of the first thing to keep in mind. So as we go through these traits uh, of psychopathy, if you're finding that some of them apply to you, don't freak out. That's normal. Again, 99% of the population is not going to have enough of these traits or have them to such an extreme that it would qualify for a diagnosis of psychopathy. So I just said diagnosis of psychopathy, and that's a little bit misleading because in the United States, we use a book, mental health providers use a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And we're currently in the fifth edition of this book. We call it the DSM for short. And basically what it is, it's the mental health Bible. It contains all of the mental health diagnoses that we use in this country. And if you look through the DSM, you're not going to find psychopathy as a diagnosis anywhere. What we have, probably the closest diagnosis that we have, is what's called antisocial personality disorder. And there are actually 10 different personality disorders listed in the DSM, antisocial just being one of those. And before I talk about what personality disorders are, I wanna talk a little bit about what the term antisocial means. In our society, I think that this term gets misused all of the time. Typically in popular culture, when somebody talks about being antisocial, what they're really meaning is that they're shy or maybe they don't really like socializing or they're more introverted. And that's not at all what this term means in the mental health field. So when we talk about being antisocial with regard to a mental health disorder, what that means is that the person really has no regard for the feelings or rights of other people. So let's talk a little bit about what personality disorders are. So the DSM says that personality disorders are are an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectations of the individual's culture, is pervasive and inflexible, has an onset in adolescence or early adulthood, is stable over time, and leads to distress or impairment. So antisocial personality disorder means that it is this pervasive disregard for the rights and feelings of others and a disregard for society's rules.
0: I really like the example that you've used in the past that I still use to this day, which is explaining a personality disorder is like having a road map to one particular city. Let's say I'm from Denver and I have a roadmap of Denver that I use all the time. Mm -hmm. But now I'm in Los Angeles and I'm going to insist that this roadmap of Denver is going to get me around Los Angeles.
1: Right. That's, that's a really good way to think about personality disorders. They're just very inflexible. The person is insisting on doing things a particular way. And they're not mental illnesses like some of the other mental health disorders that we've talked about. So we talked last episode about uh, schizophrenia or um, delusional disorder. So personality disorders are not like that. They're not like depression. They're not like anxiety. They're not like post-traumatic stress disorder. They're more kind of an organ, a way that we organize ourselves and our view of the world and how we look at other people and interact with other people.
0: So generally speaking, we could say that there isn't a biological basis to a personality disorder the way there is to a mental health issue.
1: Well, not exactly. So as we're doing more research, we're finding that for some of the personality disorders, there does seem to be a biological component.
0: Mm, Fascinating.
1: But the idea is that the behavior that accompanies a personality disorder is volitional in nature, meaning that the person could choose to act differently. They just aren't very likely to do so. So antisocial personality disorder, like I said, is probably the closest diagnosis that we have available to us in the United States in the DSM. But it doesn't mean the same thing as psychopathy. Psychopathy can be thought of as the most extreme version of antisocial personality disorder. So when we look at inmates in the United States, approximately 75% of them will qualify for a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder.
0: I would probably agree with that statement.
1: Yeah, because one of the criteria is that the person has, you know, broken the law, has that disregard for the rules of society. But when we're looking at psychopathy... Only 10 to 20% of in- the inmate population will qualify for a diagnosis of psychopathy. And when we're looking at the population at large, only 1% of people will qualify for a diagnosis of psychopathy. And that's not just in the United States, that's in every culture in the world. So we're finding the same base rate for psychopathy that we saw for schizophrenia.
0: So this is elemental. To human nature, it sounds like.
1: It sure seems that way. But one thing I want to point out. So, like I said, not all criminals are psychopaths. And even when we're looking at the most violent criminals, only approximately one-third of them are psychopaths. Also, many psychopaths don't commit crimes. They may find other kind of less illegal ways of managing their psychopathy. And so there are certain professions where we see higher concentrations of psychopaths. And do you have a guess on what the number one profession might be, David?
0: Oh, do I want to know? Any guess? Off the top of my head, I would probably say business? something to do with business?
1: Yes, you're right. So they say that the highest concentration of psychopaths that are not criminals are CEOs of companies. Ah. So kind of interesting. So again, not every psychopath is a criminal, not every criminal is a psychopath, and overall it's it's a pretty rare concept. The other thing is that not all psychopaths engage in murder. I think that that's something that the media portrays is that psychopaths are mass murderers, serial killers and that we're all in grave danger of being murdered by a psychopath.
0: Well, I think that's definitely the what what mainstream culture is fascinated with currently in terms of psychopathy.
1: Right. But the reality is that we're all form, far more likely to be conned or swindled by a psychopath than we are to be murdered by a psychopath.
0: Mm, that makes sense.
1: So let's talk a little bit about where this idea or where this concept or, or label has come from. So Hervey Cleckley in 1941 wrote a book called The Mask of Sanity, and we'll have a link to that book on our website. You can read it for free online. And he talked about kind of the modern idea of psychopathic traits. But when we think about psychopathy currently, the name to know is Dr. Robert Hare. He is a psychologist out of Canada, and he's spent the last several decades looking at psychopaths, researching them, and working with them in the prison system in Canada. So he wrote probably one of the best-known books on psychopaths. It's called Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us, and this was first published in 1993. If you've not read this book, and you're interested in psychopaths at all? I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. There are a lot of case examples from Dr. Hare's practice over the years. He includes a lot of the research on psychopathy, and then it goes over all of the characteristics that make up a psychopath. The other thing to know about Dr. Hare is that he developed the most commonly used instrument for diagnosing psychopathy, and it's called the Psychopathy Checklist Revised. And we're currently in the second edition of that assessment so and he talks about that in his book as well so let's talk a little bit about the different characteristics that make up a psychopath and this is according to Hare. so the first is that they're glib and superficial meaning that they're very charming on the surface but once you get to know them that really just kind of falls apart you you see right through it they're also egocentric and grandiose so think narcissism They have a lack of remorse or guilt. They don't feel bad. They don't have any regrets for anything that they've done. They lack empathy. They have a hard time understanding how other people feel and taking that into consideration. They tend to be deceitful and manipulative. And in fact, psychopaths like to lie just to lie, not even to get anything. It's called duping delight. And they will do that just to see if they can get one over on a person. They have shallow emotions, meaning that they don't really feel things very deeply. They may be able to kind of act like they're experiencing something, kind of fake it, but it doesn't go very deep. They tend to be very impulsive. They have poor behavioral controls, so they kind of act on whatever they feel like doing. They have a need for excitement, so they tend to be adrenaline junkies. They lack responsibility, so you'll find that they often have been fired or quit several jobs. They don't have other jobs lined up. They may move frequently, have lots of um, romantic relationship. You know, they don't pay their bills, things of that sort. They have early behavioral problems. And when we're talking about psychopaths, there's some research to suggest that they start displaying behavioral problems even in early childhood. Right. And then adult antisocial behavior. And again, that's talking about that disregard for other people and for the rules of society. So what people always ask me, what my students always ask me is, well, where does this come from? And so, like most things in psychology, we're finding that psychopathy comes from a combination of nature, which is our biology, our genetics, and nurture, which is our environment. So, there was actually a very interesting study at King's College in London in 2015. And what they did is they looked at the brains of violent criminals. Some of the violent criminals were not psychopaths. Some were psychopaths. And then they compared these brains to the brains of normal people. So people who are not psychopaths and who had never engaged in criminal behavior. So they looked at all three groups in an MRI machine and what they found was very interesting. So they found that the psychopaths brains were different not just from the normal people's brains but also from the brains of the violent criminals who were not psychopaths. So what they found was that psychopaths have decreased gray matter in the areas of the brain that are thought to be responsible for our ability to empathize, to experience self-conscious emotions, so things like guilt or embarrassment, and to learn from reward and punishment. So their brains don't learn the way that the rest of ours do. And what they believe is that people are kind of born with these characteristics, with these, these differences in their brains. Um, from the very beginning but it only gets triggered when they're exposed to the right environmental factors. So what I mean by that are things like being abused as a child, growing up in a home where there's domestic violence, growing up with parents who are abusing drugs or alcohol or experiencing pretty severe peer rejection. The problem is that we don't really know what exact combination produces this. Is it mostly biology or is it mostly environment? Or does it depend on the person? Right. So I think about uh, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, and he was diagnosed as being a psychopath. And what he said, you know, throughout his interviews was that he grew up in a very healthy, normal home, that he wasn't abused or neglected in any way. His parents were very loving and supportive. And so if that is indeed the case, and that's what what all the evidence suggests, you know, is biology maybe a little bit more important? It's really hard to say. The last thing that I just wanna to touch on before we get to your viewpoint on this, David, mm-hmm. is the difference between sociopaths and psychopaths.
0: I think that's a, an important distinction.
1: Yeah, I, I think in our society, people will often use these terms interchangeably, but they don't actually mean the same thing. So when we talk about sociopaths, the thought is that these are individuals that their criminal behavior is a product of their environment that biology really isn't coming into play. So these are the people that had really horrible upbringings, really horrible childhood. And then they go on to engage in criminal behavior. So I kind of think of these individuals as being more the people that are diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Right. And the way that Hare, Dr. Hare describes these people is that they tend to be hot-headed. So they experience emotions, unlike psychopaths, and And they experience them very deeply, very intensely, and then they're very reactive in their behavior. Psychopaths, on the other hand, are more cold-blooded. They don't have those intense emotions, and so they tend to be more calculated in their behaviors.
0: So that's fascinating. I think within the prison system, uh, you and I both are definitely familiar with the sociopath type. Right. Very emotive.
1: Yes. Yes, I Um, would agree. I
0: feel things very deeply... um, And react in kind. Psychopaths seem to be a lot less common. Because those are the ones that are so cold-blooded in their presentation that it kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up.
1: Yeah, and people will talk about that. And I've certainly had this experience that you have an emotional, like a gut-level reaction when you're interacting with a psychopath.
0: Well, there's something about somebody who does not experience emotion the way most normal people do. And dealing with somebody like that, as opposed to just dealing with somebody who not only experiences emotion, but experiences it just more intensely. Because I can deal with intense emotion. Right. But the colder, more calculating,
1: It's harder to relate to, for sure. And with psychopaths, sometimes it takes a little while to realize that that's what's going on because they do have that superficial charm, and it's almost designed to draw people in. But then again, when you try to connect with them on a deeper level, that falls apart pretty quickly. So so those are kind of the the contemporary views, the mainstream psychological views of psychopaths. And so now I'm very interested to hear... (laughs) what maybe the transpersonal view is, the Jungian view, um, or a more philosophical view on psychopathy.
0: Sure. Admittedly, I had to do a little bit of research. I had to dig around some of the literature that I have um, acquired since studying transpersonal psychology because this isn't something that I remember the transpersonalists addressing head-on. Um, at least not this topic of psychopathy. And there's a number of reasons where that, why that might be the case. And we can get to those a little bit later, but I did find some literature and some theories I think that might be appropriate for this.
1: Ooh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it.
0: Sure. So in terms of the, the transpersonal sort of view on this, um, again, I haven't read anything definitive and there seems to be an aversion to the idea that some people are evil or beyond redemption. That seems to make the transpersonalist very uncomfortable.
1: And that's kind of how people refer to psychopaths, right? That they're evil and that they can't be helped.
0: Sure. If there is indeed a very strong biological component to this, then that would almost be the case, correct? Unless we could change the biology somehow.
1: Well, and I think that there's no cure for psychopathy by any means. And we're just kind of starting to learn some more effective things therapeutic tools um, in managing psychopaths and and getting them to manage their own behavior. And what we found is that the way to do that is to point out any consequences that are impacting them directly. Okay. So training them in empathy doesn't work. It it doesn't... It just actually makes them better criminals.
0: And that goes against pretty much every treatment fiber in my therapist body.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because we want... We feel empathy and so we... Assume, and we want other people to feel it. And most other people do. But for this 1% of the population, they don't. And when we teach them how to approximate empathy, it actually can make them better at taking advantage of people.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, the theory that I read that deals with antisocial behavior, including criminal behavior, has been in the realm of Ken Wilber, who is an integral theorist is what uh he refers to himself as but he's also one of the first and most important theorists within transpersonal psychology um and he uses also and refers to another system called spiral dynamics these are both uh systems of developmental consciousness spiral dynamics was pioneered by dr claire graves and further developed by Don beck and chris cowan and this is a kind of evolutionary consciousness. Um, in other words, a relatively healthy person will pass through different levels of consciousness at different times in their lives. We've seen this before. Um, Piaget, Kohlberg, Carol Gilligan. There are other theorists who who use this sort of idea. Um, Ken Wilber likes to say the transcend and include. What that basically means is that as we move through life, we go through one state of consciousness. We transcend that state of consciousness as we learn new things and grow, and uh, but are still including that level of consciousness. In other words, it never really goes away. It just okay. becomes more dormant as the ego persona sort of manifests this new level of consciousness. So
1: as it develops. Okay. As it
0: develops, sure. So this process continues throughout a human uh, person's life. Development or growth along these lines is most succinctly defined as a decrease in egocentrism or the ability to extend compassion to greater and greater spheres of existence. This means that one is able to think past himself to his family, then to his community, then to all humans, then to all living beings, then to non-sentient beings such as plant life, the environment, etc. Mm-hmm. And so we have these greater and greater spheres of compassion and declining egocentrism. Okay. Okay. This is what is typically referred to as growth along this sort of evolutionary consciousness model.
1: So, When you say egocentrism, you mean that they're focusing less on themselves and their own needs? Correct. Okay.
0: Correct. So, Pathology in this system is defined as becoming arrested in any one of these levels, which prohibits someone's ability to move forward. In the case of antisocial behavior, we might speculate that the person has become arrested in what we refer to, or what Spiral Dynamics refers to as red consciousness. So this is an excerpt from Spiral Dynamics, Mastering Values, Leadership, and Change by Don Back and Chris Cowan in 1996. Red is the impulsive meme or state of consciousness. The basic theme is be what you are and do what you want regardless. Some basic beliefs might be the world is a jungle full of threats and predators. Breaks free from any domination or constraint to please self and self-desires. Stands tall, expects attention, demands respect, and calls the shots. Enjoy self to the fullest right now without guilt and remorse, conquers, outfoxes, and dominates other aggressive characters. Where this tends to be seen most is in terrible twos with children, um, rebellious youth, or the um, rebellious teenager types, Uh um, frontier mentalities, feudal kingdoms, Game of Thrones, anyone? Ooh. Right? A lot of red-based consciousness there.
1: And it does, I mean, just from your description, it sounds like a psychopath. Sure. Very self-centered, narcissistic, only concerned about their own desires.
0: Sure. James Bond villains, Mm -hmm. epic heroes, soldiers of fortune, wild rock stars, Mm -hmm. these types. In a normally developed human being, the stage is transcended to a higher form of consciousness. But for someone who remains stuck, it then becomes antisocial behavior. This obviously speaks more to sociopath types than, I think, psychopath types, which, as you mentioned, most likely have a biological component as well.
1: So this, doesn't, this model doesn't really account for that biological, for those brain differences. Correct. Okay.
0: So according to Don Beck and Chris Cowan and theorist Ken Wilber, what would need to happen here is that the person would need to address whatever arrested them in this stage of consciousness, which for most people would be some form of unaddressed or untreated trauma. This is obviously the go-to for treatment today. Let's find the reason they are stuck and unstick them. Mm -hmm. In the case of theorist Ken Wilber, the treatment would have to match the pathology. In other words, you probably wouldn't use existential or transpersonal therapies for someone stuck in this form of consciousness, but would probably use something focused on lower-functioning pathologies, like CBT, for instance, good old cognitive behavioral treatment.
1: Yeah, and I think for those of you who aren't familiar with it, cognitive behavioral treatment is where we are focusing on a person's self-talk, their thoughts, and um, helping them to make changes in their their thinking so that it is more reflective of reality and thereby reduces distress.
0: Correct. Very direct, very concrete. Insurance companies love it because there's a beginning and an end. Right, right. It doesn't go on forever like some, some forms of psychoanalysis might. Okay. So this is really... I think the leading theory in terms of how to describe antisocial personalities within the transpersonal realm, there is also some other things. Um, but before I get to that, I would like to put this out to any transpersonalists who might be listening. I would love to hear any about any literature or any theories that you've come across that r- deals directly with psychopathy. I think that would be fascinating. Um, so I'll put that out to my alma mater, Sophia University out in Palo Alto or any other schools that are focused on the transpersonal. I also did some looking at Jung and the number of dark archetypes that uh, Jung wrote about, which can in effect possess somebody or take them over and torture them, so to speak.
1: So can you just explain real, real briefly, what is an archetype?
0: So that might actually be a whole nother show <laughs> right, but basically an archetype is an idea or something that is um that spans culture,
1: yeah, it's like so it's like um, it's almost like a myth or something that we find in every single culture, right well, or a uh, symbol that we find in every culture
0: across cultures we have. A number of stories that seem to resonate within us. Um, the the most clear cut and the most probably one of the most well known is that of the hero's myth, and so this has become an archetype. This story of the hero and the hero's journey has become an archetype because every culture pretty much has this story in some shape or form. Okay. So that would be considered an archetype. Okay,
1: that makes sense. So these are dark archetypes that are kind of present in in every culture.
0: Correct. Okay. So the dark archetype that would probably fit here the most is that of the shadow or the dark side of a human being. This is the side of us that we repress and generally do not acknowledge as part of our persona. This is the or the ego-driven part of ourselves, the part that we show the rest of the world. The shadow is not that.
1: Okay, it's the part that we hide.
0: The part that we hide, right? Generally, we each have ways to keep our shadow from running the show. Some people manage their dark side in healthy ways, such as through therapy, exercise, contemplation, art, dance, martial arts, etc. Others wrestle their shadow in not so healthy ways, uh, such as dangerous sexual behavior, excessive alcohol and drug use, fighting, and other forms of antisocial behavior. Mm-hmm. In union thought, a person's shadow needs to be expressed and honored from time to time to bleed off the pressure, so to speak. Cultural representations of this might include wild parties, such as Mardi Gras, Burning Man, Carnival, mm. um, or simply just having fun at the bar. The, this idea can be represented in the term that we use, blowing off steam. Okay, yeah. We're sort of honoring that side of ourselves and letting it come out and play a little bit, but in a very controlled way. Got it. Sure. And this can be seen as healthy. If, however, the shadow is not expressed in a controlled way, it becomes repressed and transforms into something more virulent. The ego persona assumes control while the shadow grows. If this goes on for too long, we see some kind of explosion of the shadow in a way that is highly unexpected. So the lesson here would be honor and explore your shadow. Learn how to dance with it and manage it. If you don't, it will manage you. A psychopath then could be somebody who is possessed by their own shadow dimension. The shadow is running the show because they are not addressing some very fundamental issues in their life through much more healthy channels. This is arguably the idea behind the show Dexter, the psychopath who learns to channel his shadow by only killing bad people.
1: Yeah, I love Dexter.
0: Sure. (laughs) Granted, still not the best example because he still kills people.
1: Right, yeah, that's not exactly managing your shadow if you're still killing people.
0: Right, but here we have this idea that it can be at least directed and in the show, you know, theoretically towards something that could potentially, maybe be good. Right. 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 Killing bad people instead. Right. Okay. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, So there's another perspective on it. Um, The one that probably resonated with me the most and uh, what transpersonalists really try to do is incorporate a lot of Eastern spiritual traditions as well. So in terms of what we would call Buddhist psychology, um, the Buddhist thought on this behavior, Or, you know, psychopathy manifested as violence towards other human beings is that violence is a manifestation of suffering. It takes a suffering individual to enact violence against another sentient being. In this idea, then, those who can kill with impunity actually probably suffer the most in this world. I can see some basic truth to this idea psychopaths often lack the ability to truly connect with others due to their inability to understand human emotion as the rest of us do this lack of connection to me at least can cause a great deal of suffering while this suffering might not be outwardly noticeable in a psychopath the term itself comes from latin psyche the mind or the soul and pathos which is to suffer this idea was pretty profound to me the first noble truth of the buddha is that life is suffering if this is the most basic part of our collective humanity would it make sense to believe that those who cannot connect with their suffering in a genuinely human way probably suffer the most we have ways to describe and deal with our suffering someone like a psychopath who is drowning in unconscious suffering does not he can only act it out in an attempt to rid himself of it by passing it on to someone else but this only works for a short while before the suffering consumes him again and the suffering perpetuates itself. And maybe that's sort of my final thoughts on that on for this episode. What service do people like this serve in our world? Is it to show us our collective darkness? Is it to help us clearly identify our collective suffering? Or maybe to push us past our limits of compassion if we can extend compassions to even people who are like this, you know, does it, it, that's does it a challenge. challenge us?
1: Yeah, that is a challenge because, and, and you do hear about it. I mean, you hear about victims' families, you know, especially if we're thinking about, you know, some of the bigger cases in the media, serial killers, and the victims' families who end up forgiving and and provide giving compassion to these individuals
0: sure absolutely
1: but i think that would be a hard sell for most people it's very difficult when somebody wrongs you and hurts you and harms you on purpose to extend that compassion.
0: Absolutely. And I, I I, would never take anything away from the pain of somebody who's gone through that, who has lost somebody close to them because they were murdered or the uh, victim of a violent crime of some sort. There's, there's no question about that. It is interesting, though, to see that there are some lessons that come out of experiences like that. Right. That really force us to look at our own darkness sort of challenge ourselves to be more compassionate, even to people who would not give us that same courtesy.
1: Well, and I think, you know, given that psychopaths exist in every culture at around the same rate, there must be some reason, you know, there must be some purpose for them being here. And maybe, maybe that is what the the greater purpose is. Exactly what you said.
0: so, Real quick, explain the little argument that we have, the little sticking point, which is the biological, the evolutionary theory for psychopathy.
1: Yeah, that that's something that that's kind of my go-to. Like when there's something that continues to persist across culture, I wonder from an evolutionary perspective, what purpose is this serving? And so the theory on psychopaths, it's something called the brutality hypothesis. And basically what that means is that psychopaths exist because they will ensure the continuation of the human race. So imagine for a moment that there is some big disaster and there are very limited resources available to us. Now the people who are not psychopaths, the people who have empathy, may try to do something like spread the resources around so that everybody can have a little bit and, and try to survive for a period of time. But that's actually going to reduce the the likelihood that the race is going to continue because they won't have enough for for people to survive long term. Psychopath doesn't have empathy, doesn't care, will go in and just kill everybody and take the resources for himself or herself, thereby extending the amount of time that they have available to then procreate and repopulate the earth. It's, I mean, it, it's It's kind of interesting. It's an interesting know.
0: theory. I agree with that. I tend not to look for theories like that. I don't believe that there has to be some sort of biological or Darwinian reason why people exist or these types of people exist. I do tend to look at these people do exist. So what it does that...
1: What can know, we learn from that? And what
0: can we learn from right. that? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... If we were to be forced to find some sort of upside to this or some sort of um, lesson in this, what would that be? And I think that, you know, as a transpersonalist, that that lesson is somehow spiritual in nature. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but to be forced to look at our darkness, I think, can be very beneficial. And I think these people sort of embody this shadow dimension that we all have, just like you were referring to in the beginning of the episode, which is that little psychopath, real psychopaths who exist out there really force us to take a hard look at ourselves and the violence within ourselves and our ability to be like this as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. And I wonder if kind of one of the ways that we all manage our shadow, manage our little psychopath is by watching all of these shows and movies that are, are popular right now about psychopaths.
0: Popular culture can't seem to get enough of it.
1: Well, and we're all fascinated by it. I mean, when I teach my forensic psychology class, that's one of the reasons that a lot of students end up taking the class initially is because they want to learn about serial killers. Who doesn't? Well, and even our episode today, that's what we started with, right? It was a, a story or, or the history of serial killer Tommy Lyncelles. Right. And it is interesting. And, and in his case, and we're going to post that interview with him on our website and you guys will be able to see kind of some of these characteristics of psychopathy that we're talking about and there is a psychologist I think it's a psychologist or psychiatrist that they interview they also talk about some of the differences in his brain and that biology and environment coming together and you know he's a very good example of that so we're really interested in you guys checking that out and letting us know what you think. Um, We also want to hear, you know, have you ever met a psychopath? What were your experiences like? And why do you think that this condition persists in societies across the globe?
0: So before we sign off, who's your fictional, of course, fictional favorite psychopath?
1: I, I might have to go with... Dexter. Dexter. I, just, I really loved that show. I yeah. just thought it was very smart.
0: My favorite probably is Walter White from Breaking Bad.
1: Oh, that's a good one, too. If he
0: could be classified as a real psychopath, I think that the, what made the show so masterful was seeing his sort of descent into sociopathy.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe more of a sociopath, but there's certainly like some cold and calculated things that he does that make me feel more like maybe he was a psychopath. Maybe there was already that predisposition and then all these environmental things came along and he just descended right into psychopathy. But that's a great example. I love that show too.
0: Yeah. Dexter, it seems like was definitely more from the beginning because I think that they go back into his history as a kid and him showing those traits.
1: Right. And his, his adopted father had to teach him how to manage being a psychopath in a way that wouldn't hurt people who didn't quote unquote deserve it. So that's why I liked that show. I just thought it was really interesting.
0: Fascinating. Well, this is definitely something we will come back to. We will continue this conversation um, as new stories come up.
1: Yes. I mean, we're going to be visiting this topic over and over again when we talk about some different cases of mass murderers, con men, Serial killers, sex offenders, all those fun subjects to come.
0: All those dark sides of humanity.
1: Yes, but until then, please do visit our website, psychologyafterdark.com. We'll have links to the books and articles that we mentioned today. We'll also have that video. And we want to hear what you guys think, so please leave your comments. Also, visit us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We really appreciate your support, and we'll see you for our next episode.
0: Thanks for joining.
1: The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. It is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you're experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by me, Dr. Jessica McCona, and by Dr. David Morelos. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. Our theme song is Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop, provided by Jamendo.